0: So we are continuing in our series today, week two of a series we're calling Shameless. And it is the idea to deal with one of the the big issues that I think we carry around in life, a weight we carry around our neck called shame. And I think many people deal with shame on different levels. Some of us deal with uh, shame where we we feel like we just can't even broach the subject. And others confront shame, but we confront shame probably in a way that isn't the most practical. Uh, Last week we learned and we talked about David and the idea that Because even shame confronted his life and things that he went through, he was confronted by his wife and how undignified he had come by throwing off the bounds of shame. And he said, listen, woman, you don't get it. If you think this is bad, just wait, because I will get even more undignified than this when I do all that God's called me to right? When I accomplish everything that God's called me to, you might think you can shame me in my calling, but there's nothing that can put me off from doing what God's called. So that's kind of where we left it last week. And uh, I I want to interject a little bit of culture today as well as we start. So we had an election last week, if anyone wasn't aware, (laughs) We had an election. Uh, some people are very excited by the, by the outcome of the election or, or guess where it is right now. Some people are very excited about that. Others are demanding recounts and you know things are gonna change and whatever. Um, listen, I pray that God's will is done in this nation. I pray that the American people can always stay unified and come together. I pray that regardless of what happens that we don't start more fights and more infighting and more separation. I pray that we, the church, will eventually get as passionate about the church and the gospel as we did about one election. I will not step on anybody's toes, but I've seen, and I'm guilty of this too, but I've seen folks sharing more about politics in the last six months than they ever shared about Jesus. I've seen people proud to fly a flag and to wear a t-shirt and to wear a hat and to put on a bumper sticker, but you ask them about Christ and like, well, you know, I kind of, I believe, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and their voice is soft. Listen, if we're going to actually affect the world the way we can as Christians, we have to allow even the shame of being a Christian in culture to fade off. You aren't ashamed of your political candidate. Why would you be ashamed of your heavenly king? In fact, the Bible says if you're ashamed of him and before men, that he'll be ashamed of you before God. So maybe we need to rethink our priorities at times. Anyway, just a little bit of pastoring right there. I I needed to maybe help us see things in a different light because the world's not lost because some person becomes president, good or bad. I don't care what side of the aisle you were on. Maybe you thought the last four years were horrible. Maybe you thought the eight years before that were the worst in the, the, the span of this nation, the history of this nation. Wherever you come from on the political scale, Our nation is bigger than just one president, one party, one one, uh, presidency. It's bigger than one administration. It has gone on for how many years now? We're going to continue to go on. The gospel is going to be continued to be preached, and God is going to continue to bless his people. Amen? All right, let's get back to shameless. So freedom, I think at times, is what we're looking for when we discover that we have areas of shame that we're dealing with. And specifically, freedom from judgment. See, pain and conflict are inevitable. You and I will have moments in this life of pain and conflict. You can't avoid conflict, but you can't avoid suffering. You don't have to suffer though you have conflicted or conflicting moments in life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. So 7 and verse 1 says this, the words of Jesus. Do not Judge so that you will not be judged. For with the way you judge, you will be judged and by the standard of measure, by by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Now there's a famous verse that follows this, something that I think some of us don't understand the context all that well. Luke chapter six and verse 37, part of the synoptic gospel, the story told three times by three different authors to show us that the story of Jesus is true and one of them writes this verse in 37, do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemned, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. He moves on into verse 38, and he says, uh, oh Lord, where am I at here? Oops, I messed up that one. He, verse 38, and he says, uh, give, and it will be given to you. Uh, they will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by the standard you measure, it will be measured back to you, or it will be measured to you in return. So this is A scripture that we hear a lot, uh, specifically around giving, verse 38, give, and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaking together, running over, so God calls men to get back in your bosom, back into your life, back back into your heart, except the context of this verse is really simple. The context of this verse is really about what? Judgment. What he says before is, if you judge, if you put people off, then you're going to be put off. If you accept and you, and you give people a, an opportunity to reconcile, God will bring reconciliation. But Jesus uses this idea, this idea of giving, give, it'll be given back this idea of seed, or seed faith, or the law of reciprocity, or the law of sowing and reaping, or the law of giving and receiving. He uses this law to exemplify a point when we're talking about judgment. See, I think a lot of times we look at the scripture and we think it only applies to money. And it actually might apply to money in an out of context way. In more pressing context, it's really about judgment how we judge others, how we judge ourselves, what we allow into our life, the seedbed of our heart. What are we allowing to germinate in the seedbed of our heart? And many of us, because we feel a sense of shame in our life, we don't necessarily know how to balance the scales of what judgment really is, and we'll talk about that here today. See, realize that this is a great example of the law of sowing and reaping. It's a great example of how Jesus has showing is showing us how the kingdom works that there's a law at work that when you give you get that when you plant you receive that when you plow the ground and you you intentionally dig into the soil when you intentionally plant something that from that comes whatever you planted we all pass judgment from one time or another we all pass judgment to different people at different times And we tend to focus on the negatives, right? We tend to focus on the idea that this word judgment means that I judge you based on how you look or I judge your attitude or you have too many tattoos or you come from the wrong side of the tracks or you don't speak speak well enough and whatever the issue is. Your education isn't high enough. We tend to think that's judgment. There are also good avenues of judgment where we look and we judge or we take the information in and we think about a situation and we apply our best level-headed knowledge and we move on to make decisions. There's also that style of judgment. They're not the same thing, but we tend to think only of the bad. The bad side of judgment is simple. It's that we assume to know someone's motives, right? So we can see things happening in life that are real and that we need to apply a rule and a standard to, but that doesn't mean we can assume someone's motives. In fact, scripture warns us deeply against doing that. When we assume others' motives, we're put in an impossible situation, Instead of living my life in a reactionary form to the judgment that I have of others or the judgment they have on me, I should be living my life secure in knowing who I am in Christ Jesus, where my identity is. See, shame manifests when we start to judge. We judge ourselves, we allow others to judge us, and then the shame of life starts to pile on us. There's a famous phrase in all the self-help books. There's a famous phrase that is in like the John Maxwell type stuff and the leadership books. And it's something like this, and I'll paraphrase, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And the same is true for the status of judgment that we have around us. Show me the people you hang around with the most and I'll show you the level of judgment that's in your life. If you hang around judgmental people, guess what? There's going to be a high level of judgment. If you hang around people that are bad mouth and they judge you and they judge themselves harshly and they judge others, the level of judgment in your life is going to rise. And that is always going to be at a certain level because the voices you have around you are just judgmental by nature. And sometimes that's a hard thing to recognize. Sometimes it's a a very difficult thing to do away with. See, we all have to observe fruit. See, I know that you know, we, we come in life and we think, okay, if, if we're Christians, then we don't judge because judging is bad and I don't want to judge anyone. But again, there's a difference between judging a situation or scenario based on the truth and the facts of the matter as opposed to judging someone's intention or the motive of their heart. See, judgment again is assuming I know why you did something. The truth is that certain things happen in life. They're just reality. There's scenarios, there's truths that happen in life and it's just the way it is. For example, you might be in a conversation with someone and they give you a harsh statement back and maybe they don't mean to, but they say something to you and it sounds very harsh. Now your your response could be simple. That was a very harsh statement, I didn't appreciate it. Now their response back in the Christianese world could be, you can't judge me, you can't judge me. Judgment's bad. It's not wrong to say that statement was mean or, or harsh. The, 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 the negative side is coming when I say, I assume to know your motives. I assume to know why that statement was harsh. I assume to know why you said the things that you said. I assume to know why that, that those words came out of your mouth. That would be judgment. Let me give you a different example. Maybe somebody comes asking you for money and you recognize that there's someone who's hard up for money all the time. And they just can't seem to get their life straight and pay their bills. It happens from time to time. And we don't always know the backstory of why that happens. And this person comes to you and says, I would like to borrow some money. I need it. I'm in dire straits. Please help me. And because we know the background, we look at them and say, well, you know, I'm going to have to hold off on that for a second. I want to help you, but I don't think just giving you cash is the best avenue in which I can help. And that person might get entirely offended and say, listen, you're just judging me. You're like all the other Christians. You're judgmental. I can't believe you wouldn't just help me when you really do want to do the right thing judgment or uh, an unnecessary judgment of the situation would be to say, I know why you're bad with money. You're bad with money because you're you're uneducated. You're bad with money because you're you're a spendthrift. You just don't know how to uh, manage your money properly. You're bad with money because you've, you've never been taught honestly how to manage a checkbook. We could have all of these ideas float through our head and judge a person based on motive and rather than just looking at the situation for what it is. I find in our culture, this is a very difficult thing to do, to just stand back and allow life to happen, look at the facts of the matter, and quit judging motives of other people. In fact, we're, we're seeing that a lot in our cultural landscape, especially through this political change that we're going through. We're seeing it all the time, man. We're judging motives here, mo- judging motives there, and some of them are very intent, right? Some people tell you exactly what they intend to do. Other folks, we, we hear something or we see something and we make these broad assumptions the Bible doesn't want us to get caught in that. In fact, the words of Jesus are pretty simple. When you get caught in this cycle, you're gonna get more of it back onto your life. So the judgment that you're putting out will eventually come back on you. And what does he say? Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. In good measure, it's gonna be put back on you. But he also says that about forgiveness. That if you forgive in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, in that same, in that same thought line, he's saying the forgiveness can be extended to you as well. It's all on how we play the cards of what's been put in front of us. The most destructive place, though, I think, where we find judgment is when we pass judgment on ourselves. When we try to fix ourselves according to this blanket idea of judgment that we throw over our life. Now, we hear things. We hear things from moms, from dads, from coaches, from teachers, from trusted loved ones. We hear things sometimes spoken over our lives that cast a shadow of judgment. Well, you know, our family's just not that smart. You know, no one in our family's ever gone to college. You know, no one in our family's ever really bought their own home. They've always lived on credit. You know, no one in our family uh, has ever really excelled in any way, shape, or form. And, and maybe they even look to you and say, you know, you're just not as smart as your brother or your sister. You're just not good enough. Maybe that's the judgment that you feel. Maybe it's, sm- it's simple, and, and it's maybe even something that's uh, n- under the surface, like, you know, you could stand to lose a few pounds. Everybody's been there from time to time, right? We feel the judgment that comes on, and sometimes people mean it, and sometimes people don't. There's a woman who is pregnant. And I won't name her, uh, but as a woman I know who is pregnant, <clears throat> and she had a big belly, you know, like moms do with a big baby in the belly. She has a big coat on, and she's walking around, and you know, just living life. And her mother sees her for the first time; hadn't seen her for a long time. Has this big puffy coat around her. The first thing her mom says is, "That coat makes you look fat." thinking the girl's pregnant. She's like eight months pregnant and you're gonna tell her she looks fat in a coat? That's judgment. That's unnecessary judgment, but sometimes it gets in our psyche and it pulls us down. And what happens? We start to judge ourselves. We start to judge ourselves by the words of others and by the culture around us and by the context that we live in. This verse is very important, but to me, it's it's a very small thing. That I be judged by you, the words of Paul, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I love what Paul's saying here. He moves on and he says, "For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I, I am not by the acquitted. I'm sorry. Let me go back there. I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord." First Corinthians chapter three and verse, or First Corinthians chapter four and verse three and four. Man, we're having a hard day with tech today. It's okay, though. We'll get there. But to me, it's a very small thing, Paul says, that I'd be judged by any one of you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Listen to what he's saying. I don't care about what you think of me. In fact, he's using a term that we used to use in the 90s, and people got awkward tattoos now placed on their body with this phrase, only God can judge me, right? See it in the movies. We see it all over comic culture at the time. Only God can judge me. And it's a good phrase if you understand the pattern. It's actually a great phrase if you really understand what Paul is setting us up for. There's a pyramid of sorts that he's talking about of conquering judgment, He says, first, stop judging. He's like, I don't don't judge. I don't care about the judgment. You stop judging. Me, I'm not interested in the judgment in a general sense. If we're gonna erase shame from our life, first, we have to commit to this idea that we stop judging. Number two, stop reacting to the judgment of others. Why do we care what other people think about us when we know what Jesus thinks about us? Now, I know it's a difficult place to be and sometimes it's hard to do, It's hard to convince ourselves that Jesus sees us the way he does, that we are a child of God, that we're set aside, that we are the apple of God's eye, that he loves us and he cares for us, that he wants nothing but great things for us. I think at times it's hard to see ourselves in that light, but honest to God, that's who we are. If we understood our dignity and worth, our value in this life, we wouldn't really care too much about the judgment of others. So first, we stop judging. Second, we stop reacting to the judgment of others. Third, as Paul points out, we stop judging ourselves. Paul said, listen, I even looked at myself and I look pretty darn good. We forget the words here that he uses. Listen, I look to me and I know me and I like me and I love me and I know that if you knew me the way I know me, you would love me too. This is the attitude of Paul that he's honestly saying, I'm not worried about the judgment, even the judgment that could come from within. Number four, know that you're redeemed. He says, I'm not acquitted because I see myself in the right and proper light. He says, I'm acquitted because of who Jesus is, because there's only one person who can honestly place judgment against me, and it is the God of heaven. Now, judging oneself is a totally different attitude than discipleship. There's an attitude in discipleship where we examine ourselves against scripture. That's not judgment. That's aligning ourselves with the word of God, carving out a space where we become more and more like Christ Jesus. And that's, again, not judgment at all. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2, and we're going to start there. Therefore, there is now no... For in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of shame, death, judgment. That there's a final judgment put on us, it's death, separation from God. That there's sin, an action or attitude or anything around us that senses to steal the voice of the Holy Spirit, it brings a sense of shame. Paul says this very specifically, that there's no condemnation. We don't have to feel the weight of judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ, through the spirit of the law, frees us from these chains of shame, frees us from the the chains of judgment. This is the space we all need to learn to live in, that Paul himself was saying, I don't care what the human court says about me. I don't even say negative things about me. I know that I'm redeemed or I'm acquitted, but not of my own self, but because the one who looks on me is the Lord. He understood his placement. He reemphasizes or shows us a different way to look at it in Romans chapter eight and verse one and two, that we are redeemed of those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be subject to this law that breaks us down, that holds shame, that holds judgment over us. We can be free from that if we'll allow ourselves to live in the light of the scripture. John Wesley's mother, can I grab the water? John Wesley's mother, uh, he was asking her at one point, what is sin? If you don't know who John Wesley is, he's a great, great father of the church of, well, the church in America. And he was asking his mother, mom, what's sin? This is when he was a young boy. Mom, what is sin? And I'm gonna paraphrase her answer. Uh, but it's, it's very similar to this. She said, John, anything that you do in this life, anything in your life that would diminish the voice of the Holy Spirit, that to you is sin. Now I can't find Bible for Mama Wesley's translation of sin, I can say this, it's one of the best biblical definitions that I've ever heard. Why is that? Because it comprises tons of scriptural concepts and notes into a very succinct idea. That anything that we would do that would oppress the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life, to us, that is sin. So if we're free from the law of sin and death, we're free from shame. Shame being anything that steals the light, the voice of the Holy Spirit from us. And then the ultimate is judgment. We're free from that judgment. If you judge yourself, if you have money problems, you might theorize that you're just bad with money. You might think that you can never amass the funds that are needed to live life at a different level. You might think that there's just no teaching in this world that can fix your problems. You're living in judgment. You've already succumbed to the weight of shame and you're living in judgment. And shame diminished in you, the voice of the Holy Spirit that says you can do all things through Christ. That says God wants to bless your life not to take from you. You're diminishing the voice of the Holy Spirit who says you can be an overcomer in all things, even a more than conquering spirit. We're diminishing what we could be because we're allowing judgment and shame to sink in. Judgment always follows shame. Whether we want to believe it or not, first there's an aspect that happens in our life where we feel a sense of shame. Maybe we Maybe we are deserved of that shame. We did something wrong and maybe there's some shame that's deserved or maybe it's not at all. Maybe it's just pushed on us from culture and the surrounding efforts. But shame infiltrates our life. And the next thing is judgment happens. Whether it's from others or from ourselves, judgment starts the cycle. And what happens first? We judge ourselves. We feel a sense of shame and we judge ourselves totally unworthy of anything that God has said over our life, anything that God is doing in our life, and the next thing we do is we project those feelings onto others and we say, listen, I know why you did what you did. And we start the cycle of shame and judgment over and over and over. Romans chapter two and verse one, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. Think of that for a second. Paul speaking in Romans, that many of us understand the sense of shame and judgment, and that when we attack others because of how insignificant we feel based on shame and judgment, what happens? we become guilty of the very thing we're promoting. Paul isn't saying you're guilty of the action. Paul's saying you are guilty of the sense of judgment that you're putting on others. He's not saying that you're succumbing to the same activities. He's saying you're succumbing to the same attitude and that's the worst part of it. I can tell you this, when we see people in the church, and it happens from time to time, who are actively judging others, Actively trying to assume motive. Actively trying to say, I know why you do this, and I know why you do that, and I know your heart, and I know this, and I know that. And sometimes we'll even get spiritual about it and say, the Holy Spirit told me. Generally, it's a bunch of bullsnot. (laughs) The fact is, Paul says when we act that way, we are guilty of that same sin of judgment. But Jesus gave us a remedy. Forgive and It'll be given to you. Press down, shaken together, running over. Shall men give into your bosom? Shall God cause others to give back to you the same thing that you've seeded into that relationship. The same thing that you've seeded into your heart. The same thing that you've seeded into their heart. Shame is always going to be a killer if we don't uproot it. Judgment follows shame in some of the worst ways that we see in life. Shame causes us to get in a cycle of selective processing. Maybe you've never heard this term before. Maybe you have. Selective processing works like this. Once we pass judgment about ourselves or others, we start to notice whatever that issue is. We start to notice it over and over in the lives of others or ourselves, and it confirms our judgment. It's kind of like saying this. If I told you right now, I hate red Hondas. I hate them with a passion. I want to run them off the road every time I see them. I hate red Hondas and people who drive red Hondas are stupid, they have low IQs. I can't believe anyone would drive a red Honda. If I say that, what happens? You drive down 280 and the next thing you see is red Honda, red Honda, red Honda, red Honda. You'll see every red Honda in the Quad Cities in the next week, why? Selective processing. Something in your mind is telling you to look out for the red Hondas. This is what Paul is trying to pull us away from. That when we pass judgment, the one thing we start looking for are confirmations of that judgment. If we pass judgment on ourselves, the moment we maybe spend a little more than we should have on an outfit or an item. Well, look at that, I'm bad with money. There goes my checkbook. The moment we judge ourselves and we overeat just a little bit and we're trying to lose weight, we throw the diet to the side and say, bring on the cheesecake and strawberries, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Hallelujah, right? Live free from that bondage. Listen, I'd rather die fat and happy. I'm just saying. We're all going to die someday. so (laughs) Not too fat, though. But we pass judgment, and because of this processing that happens in our brain, we selectively look for things to confirm our judgment. If you have your Bibles again, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that kindness of God leads to your repentance? Do you know that God doesn't pass judgment on us to get us to repent? I know that's a hard one, but what about my sin? He knew it before he sent Jesus to the cross. He knew every sin you would ever commit for a lifetime before Jesus ever hit that cross and he still decided to send his son because he loves you. What he didn't do was say, you dirty rotten scoundrel, at this point, I'm gonna whoop you silly until you get your life right. We often talk about the love of God in the story of the prodigal son. For those of you who aren't aware, the prodigal son is a man who takes his father's riches. He spends it wildly. He finds himself face deep in pig slop. And he recognizes that his father's lowest servant lives better than he's living. So he makes this decision within himself and he says, I have got to go back home because I know my father's worst servant lives better than I do. He goes home. He makes the journey. He comes to his father's house and he sees his father off in the distance and his father sees him and his father runs to him. Now, here's the story. His father runs to him. Now, what we don't get out of the story is this, is the father sees the son. He's so ticked off at of what the boy did that he runs to the shed, finds a servant, beats the hell out of him to satisfy his wrath, and then finally goes and embraces his son. What do we read in that story? That the father sees his son, and he's filled with love, compassion, mercy, kindness, grace, he runs to that boy knowing all that he's done in every way that he's betrayed him, runs to him, throws a garment over him, covering again, covering him again, puts a ring on his finger, giving him the authority of the house and kisses him on the cheek, showing that he loves him, bringing him back into the fold. We assume at times that God's judgment follows a different path than what the Bible tells us that if we have sinned and we have wandered far from God and their shame is settled in our heart, that when we finally rectify the situation and come back home, that we will be met with nothing but malice and hatred and we'll be met with nothing but a hard nature from God. Yet we see nothing like that in scripture, that he loves you for who you are, that he loves you where you're at in this life, that he wants to see you redeemed He wants to see everything about your life change. He wants to see it motivated by the Holy Spirit and that he'll call and draw you back to the family. Why do we think so lightly of the scripture? Think about what the words say. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? His kindness is so rich, so grand, so real that we can't escape it. That even in moments where we screw up and mess up, we fall on our face, we should be judged. What does he say? His tolerance and patience that they surround us. That it's his kindness that ultimately leads us to repentance. Yet the church has been known as the oppressive arm of God to force people into subjection. You'll do what we say and you'll do it the way we say it. That was never his intention. Paul writes it so briefly yet so eloquently. Do we understand his kind nature? His kind nature is ultimately what guides us and brings us and pulls us in, not the heavy hand of God. Today I want to encourage you as we're dealing with shame and judgment that we don't look to God as this deity who's hell-bent on judging with lightning bolts, that we don't look at God as someone who's, determined to judge us at every turn and every corner, but we look at God who is full of kindness, kindness and patience and tolerance, that we look at God as someone who is filled with a good heart, who wants to welcome us back to the family the moment we repent and turn towards him. In fact, what does it say there? It says that his kindness is what leads us to Repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, if I'm not mistaken. Metanoia is this idea where we get the metamorphosis and some people have taken that and moved and and tried to create sermons around the concept of metamorphosis that when you repent, you metamorphosize like like a caterpillar that you change. That's not at all what it means. Metanoia simply means to turn in a different direction. That when we repent, we go this way instead of that way. So we feel ourselves shame-filled and casting judgment. Oh, that's not God. Let's go this way. We feel ourselves shame-filled and wanting to be led according to the judgment of this world. Nope, that's not right. That's not how God sees me. I'm gonna repent and move this way. We feel the voice of the Holy Spirit being diminished in our life. And rather than own up to the issues of life, we continue on that path and his voice gets smaller, smaller, and smaller. Rather than saying, okay, God, I get it. I'm not hearing you like I used to. I'm going to repent. I'm going to go this way. This happens because we are not consistent enough to recognize that the church has given us a bad idea of repentance. We think repentance is an altar where people come, they cry before God, they lay on their face, they're blowing snot bubbles out of their nose, like, like the God hits them and they just can't help it. They just weep and cry and weep and cry. Rather than understanding that repentance is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day activity, that we repent every time we walk away from God's intention for our life, even if it's just for a moment. God, I repent, I'm sorry, I'm going this way. God, I repent, I'm going that way. God, I repent, I'm getting back on track. If we would bring ourselves back to what real repentance is, we would understand that we can live free of shame and judgment because we deal with it moment-by-moment, day-by-day. Now, this doesn't mean that we sit around and go, God, where'd I mess up? I don't wanna screw up. God, help me, help me. What this means is that we are listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't right. Let me move. Let me change course for a second. When you're listening to your GPS and your GPS tells you to go and make a turn and you make a right turn, and then you go down a, a few blocks and the GPS tells you to make a left turn and you instead you accidentally make a right turn, what do we do? We don't go crazy and say, oh my God, life is over. I made a right turn. What am I go- I'm never going to get there. What am I going to do? Unless you're me driving with my wife, that's exactly what happens. <clears throat> but we don't freak out because the GPS said go one way and we go another way. What do we do? We recalibrate. We get back on course. The goodness of God is that he lets us get back on course every time we mess up. We don't have to live in judgment or shame because he's rerouting us constantly. Repentance, it isn't a dirty word. Repentance is a needed daily action. Moment by moment, repentance is something that we should be proud of. When someone says, hey, I heard you were dealing with an issue, an issue. how's that coming? Well, I repented, I'm on a different course. Oh, great, awesome. Hey, I heard you were having issues in in your marriage and you and your wife weren't getting along as well as you could, but yeah, I repented and we're moving in a different direction. No, I heard you and your kids were having some fights and it wasn't going the way you had expected. Yeah, we repented. They repented, I repented, different course of action. We're good now. Not saying that it's perfect and not saying we'll remain on that path forever, but we conquer it by choosing a different path, by recalibrating under the voice of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it's God's goodness and kindness that leads us in these moments of shifting our path. Amen? I don't want to take a moment and just ask, because I know it's difficult at times. If you're dealing with shame, and specifically judgment attached to shame, if you're dealing with it on a daily basis, why are you allowing it? Is it because it's just what you know? Because Paul says you don't have to live in that, right? We just read it, that we can come to a place in Christ Jesus where we dismiss all those outside voices. We focus on God only. We learn to repent honestly. Why are you living with it? Has anyone told you that you can be free from it? That you can take that albatross off your neck, that you can take the chains off of you, dispose of them and live free in Christ Jesus? Has anyone told you that you don't have to be bogged down by shame and judgment. If they haven't, let me help you. You can be free. You can be free today. It's simple. It's easy. God, I don't want this anymore. Now, you can be free in the sense that God will set you free. He'll redeem your heart. He'll redeem these moments. But it's a daily activity that looks at your life and says, that's not God's best for me. That feeling of shame that I feel, that judgment that was passed on me, that's not God's best. And we leave it, we set it aside. We leave that baggage where it needs to be in the past. This morning, I want to encourage you to get rid of shame and to get rid of judgment before it overtakes you.